You know, growing up my entire life, I was extremely blessed to grow up in a very, very solid biblical preaching church. And when I was a kid, maybe you're like me, but I remember these words still true to this day. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It doesn't say for the church tells me so. It doesn't say for my mom and dad tell me so. It doesn't say because my Aunt Phyllis tells me so. Praise God. Amen. But it says what? For the Bible tells me so. You think about other songs we may be saying when you were a child. It's the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I will stand upon the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I can't spell that much, but I can spell that. Amen. As a kid, we are taught these things that the Bible is foundational to our faith. Maybe some of you remember even going to vacation Bible school where you would have great snacks throughout the entire week. And in the middle of before the service even started, though, you had, you had somebody do the pledges. Amen. You had the American flag. We would do the pledge. We would stand and give allegiance. Then you'd have the Christian flag. We would stand up and do our allegiance. Then they had the Bible. And I always thought the Bible was a weird thing. And they would hold up the Bible. You didn't want the Bible. Amen. You wanted the American flag. Uh, you did not want to get the Bible. And at the end of the day, you would say what? I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. It was ingrained in you as a small child, as hopefully it was just like it was ingrained in me whenever I was a small child, that God's word is truly, truly God's word. That when we read from this book, this is not a book like you can pick up on any self-help aisle. This is not a book you can go to the college bookstore and just pull off and say, they're just as weighty. No, ladies and gentlemen, when we read from this book, it says God speaking himself. When we read this book, it's as if God were speaking himself. Think about that. Think about the gravity of that, that God is speaking to us. Think about the wonder of that, that God wants to talk to us, that God desires to speak to his people. From the garden to the new city, God longs to be with and speak with his people. And here we find in Nehemiah chapter 8 that the walls have been rebuilt. Just to give you a brief context of what I'm talking about, the walls had been rebuilt. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a king. And Nehemiah got word that Jerusalem walls were in destruction, were in decay, were in such a dangerous position that Nehemiah, when he got the word that the city he loved, Jerusalem, was devastated by tragedy, that the that raiders and armies that came in and destroyed the walls, that the word of God says he just wept. He just wept and wept and he cried and he fasted and he prayed. And eventually he asked the king, right? He said, oh, king, can I go rebuild my city? Can I go rebuild my walls? And you know as well as I do, it's an amazing thing that our God is in control of even foreign powers, amen, that God allows, gives Nehemiah the leave not only to go rebuild Jerusalem walls, but the king who sends Nehemiah bankrolls the whole thing, amen. Think about how powerful that is. Think about how God sends Paul on a missionary trip to Rome and Rome pays for it. Think about that church, amen? Think about the gravity of who you're dealing with talking about God. So Nehemiah goes and you know the story, right? He inspects the walls and he ends up rebuilding the walls and it says they built that entire wall system, all the crumbled up pieces, they made it look exactly like it was before in 52 days, church. In 52 days, God showed up and showed out, and they rebuilt the city walls. 
And so people started coming back. Nehemiah is, you could say, he's established as the governor. And all of the while, there's this priest. There's this, there's this priest, if you would, by the name of Ezra. And he has been there for almost 15 years before Nehemiah even shows up. He's been there with the people. He's been preaching the Word of God. He's been studying the Word of God. He's been loving the people, shepherding them well. And after the walls are completed, the eyes finally turn towards the thing that had been destroyed way before the walls. It was the people's walk with God. You see, for almost 150 years, Israel had not been walking according to God's word. Don't you see that cycle in their history? How they'll have really good seasons of walking with the Lord, then they'll have massive seasons of not walking with the Lord. That's the whole cycle of the Old Testament, correct? Israel's walking with the Lord, then they're not walking with the Lord. They're walking with the Lord, they're not walking with the Lord. Over and over again, you see the cycle. You see them, we love the Lord. Next day, we love Baal. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, we love the Lord. We love the golden calf. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, they're just, they're wishy-washy the whole entire time. For 150 years, they hadn't really been walking according to the word of God. So Ezra here is instructed to speak to the people. And look what it says here. Let's go back and read this. Let's go back and see the purpose of why the people of God gather. Look what it says there, the purpose of why the people of God gather. Verse number one in Nehemiah chapter eight, and all the people gathered as one man. How powerful is that statement? They gathered as one man. They had unity. They were a body. They were there in the entire square. The entire square was filled with men and women and children. The entire assembly was there as one man. That's powerful if you ask me. Before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. And the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand. And they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribes stood on a wooden platform and they made that they had made for the purpose they had made for this purpose think about this the whole people that are gathered there and you would think maybe they're going to show a movie maybe they're going to have a festival maybe they're going to have a carnival maybe they're going to give away hams maybe they're going to give away turkeys right maybe they're giving away eggs whatever it is they're going to give stuff away no they gathered just to hear the word of god that's all there was there was nothing else. There wasn't a conference. There wasn't uh, t-shirts given away. There was they gathered because they desired to what? We want to hear from God. We just want to hear from God. It says they gathered as one man. Look what it says there. It says Ezra got up to this platform that was made for such a purpose as this. And he reads from the word of God. He reads the Torah, right? He reads those books of Moses, those first five books. It takes him six hours. Six hours, church, from, from daybreak to midday. Six hours, he reads the Word of God. He just reads it. He just reads it. And the people stand, and the people are attentive. The people are attentive to the points where they're on the edge of their seat. They're on the edge of the precipice, right? Because they're not sitting. And at the end of the day, they're standing, and they're aware of, guess what? God is speaking to us. God is speaking to us. 
And I know many of you, you're sitting here thinking, Pastor Nick, that might be good for them, but I ain't standing for six hours for nothing. You might be thinking, man, that, that might be great for them, but I'm not going to be that attentive. My attention span is shorter than a TikTok stream. Because it's true, I don't know if you know this or not, most uh, scientists agree that we have the now average attention span less than a goldfish. Pretty crazy. That's true. That's like scientifically accurate. You can go back and look at it. Just to give you an idea how much time I'm talking about we waste, I got graphics for that. So you can look here. Let's, let's look at a few of these. I don't know if you can see them that well. I'll kind of read them best I can. But it says, Americans check their phones within the first 10 minutes of waking up. That's 90% of us almost. 89% of people sleep with their phone by their bed. Let's just do a quick poll. Who in here sleeps with your phone by your bed every night? Oh, yeah? Who in here is happily married? Keep your hand up. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, don't put your hand up. Don't put your hand up. Gotcha. Uh, some of you didn't have your hands up. Uh, and so we all sleep by our phones by our bed. Look at this. All right. Americans feel uneasy leaving their phone at home. I'm not going to lie to you. The amount of times me and Emily have came back home because she left her phone in the house because she just had to have it. Amen? She had to have it. We've turned around and went back. I don't have my phone. I don't have my phone. Acting like it was like a diabetes pump. Amen? She's got to have it. I mean, I got to have it. I got to go back. I got to go back. I mean, I don't think I don't have a phone uh, because we've made trips all the way back home to get the phone. It's crazy, right? So look at this, even more. Uh, 75% of people check their phone within 10 minutes of receiving a notification. So all you people who do not text back, we know. We know. We know you look at it and say, I'll respond later, three days later. <gasps> and you pick back up in the conversation, right? Talking like you wasn't gone for 72 hours. You know who I love? I love people who have blue text messages. If you know, you know. If you have green, get saved. Repent in the name of Christ. Give up the idol of Android and come to the family of Apple. Amen. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I love read receipts. I love read receipts because I got the receipts. My wife says she didn't get it. It says you did. I got the receipts. It says you read it. Well, I didn't really read it. And if you're like me, I've discovered if I have read receipts on, if I look at the notification on my screen, it doesn't tell them I've read it, Mike. That's pro hack. Pro hack there. We're constantly on our phones. I like this one for all the males in the room. 75% of us use our phone on the toilet. Don't raise our hands. You should be in there very quickly. You're in there four hours. Uh, you come out walking like a new giraffe. Like, what happened to you? I've just said too long. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it's amazing how much time we spend on our phones. For you little mamas in here, you close the door and barricade it thinking, don't let them in. Do not let them in. The little fingers underneath the door, one saying, what are you doing? Uh, it's amazing. So this is a lot of stats, a lot of data. You can see all this. Um, you can kind of see a lot of those things. And this one, though, is the most surprising. This one's put the next graphic, Joey, if you don't care. This one's the most surprising. So Americans spend, on average, roughly four hours and 25 minutes on their phone every day. Four hours and 25 minutes on average on their phone day. Now, I know some of you are thinking, Kenneth's flip phone would blow up, amen, uh, if it was open for four hours and 25 minutes. But I can guarantee you this, most of you probably spend more time on your phone than you're aware. 
Several years ago, Apple came out with this product called Screen Time, which is a part of their integrated software where it shows you how much time you spent on the screen. Every Sunday, isn't it amazing how the Lord's sovereignty works? Every Sunday, you get an update. When you're on the way to church, for me, it's like you spent this much time on your phone. Like, thanks, Lord. Uh, you know what I mean? Because it'll tell you. And it'll show you like you're up this much percentage, you're down this much percentage. But think about this. Here's what's really powerful about this. So if that holds to be true, four hours, 25 minutes each day, that will add up to over two months. That time every day, four hours, 25 minutes, over the course of the year will end up to be two months of time you spent staring at your phone. Thank you, Frank. That is crazy, right? You'll waste two months of your life in a year. You do the math on top of that, you think two months a year times like 30, 40 years of your life. That's a lot of time, right? Pastor Nick, what in the world does that have to do with the Bible? I'm glad you asked. Because according to some research done by Crossway, great Christian organization here, if you spend just nine minutes a day, you can read the entire Old Testament in a year. If you spend three minutes a day, you can read the entire New Testament in a year. If you spend church... 12 minutes a day, you can read the entire Bible in a year. And you're sitting thinking, well, I don't have time for that. If you separate it again, if you did less time, if you did maybe five minutes a day, one minute a day, six minutes a day, you could still read in two years. And yet I would guarantee you if I did a Bible literacy quiz in our church today, I would very, very be very shocked if anybody here had read through the entire Bible in the last two or three years. You see, the problem isn't we don't have enough time. The problem is we don't have enough discipline. We have the time. And I know some of you, I love you, and I'm going to say this with conviction and love because I'm your shepherd and I love you. You tell me all the time, Pastor Nick, you just don't understand, I don't like to read, but you spend all of your time reading other people's posts on Facebook. Pastor Rick, I'm telling you, I'm not, I don't like guys. You read every single hour of your day. You read all the time. You just use that discipline in areas that benefit you instead of reading, using that discipline in the ultimate area that will benefit you the most, which is Bible intake. The number one most important spiritual discipline there is is Bible intake. It's literally taking the Word of God and doing something with it. Taking the Word of God, getting milk from the Lord, getting meat from the Lord is Bible intake. And yet it is the most likely area of neglect in the Christian walk is Bible intake. We're good at other things, but we do not like reading the Word of God. Think about that for a second. The most beneficial thing we, don't, we do the least. Think about that. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? It's pretty crazy. But for these people, six hours was nothing. Six hours came and went, and it was nothing to them. Because they valued the word of God. Let me just show you something else you probably missed over in the text, and something that's kind of gone away in our churches, but still very true to this day. Do you notice the last verse there in chapter, in uh, verse number four, I believe it is? It says, they had built the platform for this purpose. 
So that means somewhere before Ezra came up that there had been a, a carpenter, a mason, someone in that profession, they had fashioned themselves a pulpit or a table, if you would, that would be among all the people high and lifted up so the people not only could hear the speaker, not only could see the speaker, but listen to me very carefully because this is very, very important, but it was done also symbolically to show something. It was done in a way to show that the Word of God is higher than we are. And that we will hold the Word of God higher than we are. And this is something that the church has kind of gotten away from over the years. And even us ourselves, like you can see, I don't have a pulpit, I do have a table here. But we do want you to understand that the Word of God is higher than we are. To give you an idea of this, I've got one more image for you. This is in the tabernacle there in London. This is where Charles Spurgeon once preached several years ago. And you can see here that the crowds are massive. There's thousands of people shoved into this tabernacle, shoved into this church. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon is standing up on this massive pulpit, and he's preaching the Word of God. Why? Because for anybody coming to that church, as soon as they walked in the doors, they would see this massive podium that was above everyone else. And people would say, what is that for? And they would be... They would be reminded of, guess what? The Word of God is higher than we are. It was a spiritual thing that had physical significance. It was supposed to show, guess what? The Word of God is higher than we are. But look at this. Let's keep going here. So let's see the people's response. So they had that purpose. They wanted to hear from God. They wanted to know what God says. They wanted to know God's thoughts on the matter. Let's see the response. Verse number five. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. You see this language again. He opened the book. He was above all the people. It wants you to really stress that God's word is above the people. And he opened it, all the people, they stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen. Amen and amen. When you're a kid, you think, who is the man they're talking about, amen? Amen, you're thinking, who, where's he at? Who's the man? Uh, you know what I mean? You have no idea what it means. Even maybe in our modern context, you're probably thinking, when somebody says that's right or amen, what do they mean? To say amen is to say so be it. It literally means so be it. The word actually translates in our language to be so be it. It means that when somebody says something's true, you would say amen, saying that that is the truth. That is right. I believe what they're saying is true. And I'm not going to lie to you. One of my favorite memories as a pastor is when we went over and we spoke at Brother Perry Boyd's church, amen, because that church over there, Macedonia, they preached back to me, praise God, amen. Uh, they are like you guys. You look like you're going to a funeral. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And you look just solemn and stone-faced. I don't get nothing out of you unless I show you a funny picture or talk about you texting on the toilet. But for them, when you bring the word of God to them, guess what? They would say, amen, preach it, pastor. And they preach back at you. Why? Because for them, I firmly believe they want, you to, vocal, they want to vocally summarize what's spiritually happening inside of them. Like, I believe what you're saying, pastor. Like, when we talk about amazing grace, they lift their hands up and say, that's me. I was the wretch that, was, that, was, that needed amazing grace. They take things and make it personal. Why? Because they're not, they know they're not just singing about somebody. They know they're not singing about somebody else's God. They're singing about their God. And when they hear the word of God, they say, that's right. Amen. Let it be. I love to give you a Mandalorian reference. Amen. I have spoken. Amen. Because at the end of the day, when we read the Word of God, it is true whether you agree with it or not. <laughs> Isn't that humbling? Regardless how you feel, it's still true. 
You can get mad, it's still true. So look what happens here. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They hear the word of God. They say amen and amen. You know the next response? They lift their hands and they duck their heads. Because here's the beauty of God's word, church. The beauty of God's word is it lifts us high and it brings us low. That's very important to understand this. Worship should lift us high and lift us low. It should bring us up and say, our hands should be high saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? The doxology. At the end of the day, we should worship the Lord, lifting holy hands and praying out to God and honoring the Lord. But if you want to ask me where worship in my life has made the most impact, it wasn't when my hands were up high, it was when my knees were down low. It was when my face was on the ground because when you fully see who God is, church, you finally see who you are. And I love that. I keep reminding you this over and over again. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord in that vision, he says he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what, is, what does Isaiah do? Isaiah doesn't say, oh, you know, great is me, God. I am awesome. I am, I am the best. I am a man who's perfect. I'm the man who doesn't have unclean lips. I, I am this. I'm that. No, Isaiah says, woe is me. I am nothing to you, God. I can bring nothing to you, God. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people of unclean lips. Because it lifts us up, and it should also humble us. It should bring us high, and it should take us low. Look what it says here in verse number 7. We'll go to the end part of that verse. Help, and the, the priest went around, and they helped the people understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the law, from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. They read the word of God, and then the Levites, the priests, they came around and they explained the word of God so people would understand what they were reading. Oh, what a gift it is to be able to hear and talk and read and understand. Do you understand the privilege it is, church, that you can read? That you can write? Not well. I didn't say well. That you can understand? Let me, let me just narrow this down to you the best way I know how. For these people, the only record of the law was the one Ezra was reading. That was it. There was not 45 copies in the pew in front of them. Ezra didn't say, you open up your Bibles. To Genesis chapter 1, we'll be reading God's Word. Go ahead and turn there, and nobody could turn, right? He had a Southern Baptist strong accent, by the way. No, they were fully at the mercy of the one reading the book. But thanks to the modern-day marvels of the printing press, thanks to modern-day marvels of technology, guys, you have the Word of God, and we are flooded in the Word of God, and yet we are dry as a bone when it comes to this knowledge of the Word of God. We are full yet empty. We truly are. Like you have so many options. Just give you an idea, our church, at the end of the service today, we're going to read from Psalm 119. You would not believe how many people I had come up to me. What translation do you want me to read out of? 
I had 16 conversations about it. Somebody said, I got the KJV, I got the Greek, I got the Hebrew, I got the message. You know, mom's spaghetti. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I got all these other things out there. I got this translation. I got NIV. I got, uh, you know, I got all these. Well, which one do you want? Like, literally, church, at the end of the day, we have options. Like, if you have, if you have struggle to read one translation, which KJV is a reading level, I believe, of 11th grader, you can go find one that's like 4th grade level. You can go find one that'll read it to you. And if you don't like how that translator's reading it to you, you can get a Swahili man from Africa named Felix who'll read it to you. I'm not lying to you on the Dwell app. And if you think, well, that's, that's still too complicated. Guys, do you understand the plethora of knowledge we have, and yet we are ignorant people? When other people around the world don't even have the Word of God in their own language. We are drowning in it. And yet those same people, when the Bible is translated into the language, they memorize more verses in the first year than most Christians in America memorize in their entire lifetime. Because to them, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. For them, the word is a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. For them, it's not just a storybook they read on one day a week. To them, it is the very breath of God. And they take it as such. Because words do matter. When things have been written, they matter. Several months ago, I was at my house there in Lonoke. We had just moved in and... uh, Rondell's cousin, Miss Tina, had called me on like Facebook, which is the sketchiest thing in the world. Like I immediately think when you call me on Facebook, it's a scam, right? Like if Emily ever tried to call me on that, like I ain't answering that, decline. Uh, you know what I mean? Because it's just sketchy. And Miss Tina tried to call me three times. I'm thinking this must be legit. Uh, and so I eventually messaged her back. and She said, hey, I have a gift for you I'd like to bring to your house. And I was thinking, huh, what? Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's a little sketchy. And so it kind of worked out where she could bring a gift by to my house. And sure enough, she brought a gift over to my and Emily's new house. And she said, I think you're really going to appreciate it. And I even asked Rondell, I said, what is this gift? What is it? And he was like, "Just, you're just gonna, if you don't like it, I will take it. And I was thinking, it's got to be food. You know what I mean? I was thinking, Rondell likes it. I mean, it's got to be, and, and I was close. But she brought over this, uh, like a wood, I don't know what you, what you call it, serving dish that you hang up. Charcuterie board, is that right? Cutting board, char- yeah, charcuterie board. Uh, cutting board, yeah. It's like a decorative one. It's not like you'd normally think of cutting board. It's got a handle. I think of like a pizzeria, right? It's brought over. I was thinking, hey, thanks. I've got 17 of these. We'll put it underneath the stove and we won't use it. <laughs> but then she flipped it over. And on the back side of that cutting board was Miss Glenda's own handwriting of her recipe that her apple dumplings are. That they had taken her recipe book and they had taken her exact recipe and had laser engraved in her handwriting on that cutting board, just like she had made all those years ago. Because it's amazing how someone's words can take something like a cutting board that maybe costs $10, $15, and they can instantly turn it into something that you will value for many, many years to come. Why? Because their words matter. 
how much more should our Father's words matter? How much more should the Bibles, instead of standing on our coffee tables as a coaster, how much more should we, they be falling apart? Because I can promise you this, a Bible that is falling apart is usually owned by somebody who's not. Because at the end of the day, we own these Bibles and we have options. We have a smorgasbord of them. And at the end of the day, we never open even the page of them to look into them in the first place. But these people, what was their response? Their response was, we want to hear from God. We want to understand what God's saying. And that led to a result. Look what it says here as I begin to draw us to a close this morning. Verses 9 through 13. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then they said, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. And all the Baptists said, Amen. Uh, and send portions to anyone who has nothing. Ready for this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Look what it says here. Look what he says here. You're going to miss this if you don't miss anything else. Their purpose was to hear from God. The, res- the response was they heard from God, and then they said, what must we do? We want to do something. And then what was the result? The result was what? They wept. Pastor Nick, why in the world would they cry? Why would they weep? The, the verbiage here used by the translator for wept, wept, this is not like, a, like they shed a tear. This is like mourning weeping. This is like old Yeller dies crying, right? This is like Marley and me. This is like you are crying in such a way that you are, you're almost like about to choke because you're weeping so hard. You're uncontrollably broken over what's just happened to you. Pastor Nick, why would the God's words do this to them? Because you know what happened here, church? For over 100 and for almost 150 years, they've been living how they wanted to. They've been doing what they wanted to do, marrying who they wanted to marry, sleeping with who they wanted to sleep with. They've been doing anything and everything their eyes and hands wanted to do, and their flesh had got them the results of their own actions. Their lives were broken. Way before the city's walls were broken, the spiritual spine of the city was broken. It was snapped. Because the people had decided what was right in their own minds and they had got the results. So whenever God's law was read, whenever God's word was read, you know what immediately started happening? They started seeing what God expected of them and where they were living and they started to see the gap. They started to see what God expected and where they were at, and they saw the gap, and the gap was so big, Mike, that they wept. That they wept because they said, we have broken the covenant. We have broken the law. Everything God has told us not to do, we have done. And instead of them reacting, they responded. Instead of them reacting, they responded. What do I mean by this, church? Instead of them reacting, they responded. Let me give you the best way I know to illustrate this. If you ever go to the doctor and he gives you medication and you have a reaction, that is not good. 
That is not good. Like some of you, you react to poison ivy. You react to poison oak. The reaction grows up your arm and shows itself. Why? Because your body comes in contact with something that's not good for your body. You have a reaction. And what do we have in the church today? We have thousands of Christians, when they come to God's house, they hear God's word preached, they react and they get mad. And they say, you know, that might be somebody else's word, but that's not a word for me. I pick my truth, God. I'm going to live how I want to live. Let me tell you something. Your truth and God's truth cannot be what we live by. It can't be your truth and God's truth. It has to be God's truth. Because at the end of the day, we react when we get mad, when we say, God, I'm going to twist your word to align with my life instead of twisting my life to align to your word, and we've got it all cattywampus. And at the end of the day, we react to the word of God. It's the preacher's fault that's in the Bible. It's his sermon series. And you get mad when God reads your mail and gives his messenger a message, and then you get mad at the mailman when he was the one who sent the letter in the first place. And you act like it's my fault when the Word of God touches you. And you react and you get mad and you know what you do? You'll have it your way so you'll go to another church until you go there and that pastor preaches something you don't have. And then you'll go to another church until he, he preaches something you don't have. And then you'll go to a church who doesn't walk by the Word of God, who just tells you five simple steps that God wants you to prosper. And you'll say, that's the truth for me because that's not the truth in the Word of God. And you've gone to a false church with a false pastor who's preaching a false gospel and you're going to hell. Because we just react. And you get mad. And you get frustrated. And you get ticked off and say, I'm done with it. When the correct response should be, we should respond. We should respond, church. What do you mean, Pastor? We should respond. Because if a doctor gives you medication and you respond, you know what happens? You feel good. Some of y'all, y'all haven't been there like I've been there. I've been sicker than a dog. I came in there looking like a sloth who had been beat up, spit up, chewed up every which way. I'm talking about dragon. Got a hoodie on. You look so bad. You're praying to God nobody knows you inside the doctor's room. Amen. I've been in there and that doctor looks at you and says, what's wrong? And you think, I'm on the edge of death. And of course, like every good uh, physician there is, says, we're going to do some tests. And they'll run tests, and it comes to find out you ain't got strep, you ain't got flu, you got the man flu, praise God. Which means you probably just got a rhinovirus or a common cold. Women been living with it for thousands of years, men get it once, they dead. And you're in there, and you're looking at that doc, you're pleading, you're begging, you're saying, I've got insurance, I, don't, I might not have insurance, just give me something. Just give me anything. Anything you put on this table, I will take. And she brings out this magical syringe filled with the goodness of God. And she looks at you and says, I'm going to give you a steroid shot. And let me tell you something, church. I've never in my life experienced a move of God in my life outside of salvation other than that steroid shot. Because they gave me that steroid shot, I was walking straight. I could have ran home, amen. I could have got there and not even know, met anybody know anything. Why? Because I, my body, as soon as I got the injection in my blood, it responded in such a way that everything that was crooked became straight and everything that was jacked up became right and all the bad stuff that was in me was being pushed out. Why? Because something good had been put inside of me that was pushing the bad stuff out. And I responded in a way that it made me feel good and feel really good. Why? Because my body was in the right shape. 
When we take the Word of God and we apply it to our lives, the sin gets out of our lives, God's goodness floods our lives, and we begin to walk in human flourishing because we're living according to the design which we're made in the first place by our Creator. And that's when good things happen. Why? Because we're not living according to our ways. We're living according to His ways, and He's the one who made the blueprint. But we respond to the Word of God. When God says, quit sleeping around, we quit sleeping around. When God says, if you love them, get married, you get married. When God says, hey, this is how you do your finances, you don't say, well, I'm going to have to talk to you know, my financial advisor. No, you listen to God. When God says, quit being a drunk, you quit being a drunk. When God says, we live like Christ wants us to live, we live like Christ wants us to live. You respond to the Word of God. You don't react. Some of you reacting right now, I can see on your face. I didn't hurt your feelings, amen. I lost you back at have it your way. Because these people, you know what they did? They responded. You know what? I love this. They are so broken, Rondell. They're so broken that the, the leaders have to look at them and say, quit crying. They've been crying so long, the entire leadership looks at them and says, This is a holy day. This is a great day. Because here's the truth, church. Here's the good, the best news about all. Some of you are thinking, he's, he said a bunch of good things. This is the best news of all. When you see the gap, and everybody's got a gap. Nobody here's got, nobody's perfect. Everybody's got a gap. I got a gap. You got a gap. We all got a gap. Between how we're supposed to be, what God expects of us, and where we're living. But you know what? Thanks be to God. Because you know who's in between that gap? Christ. That's what he says here. Look what he says here. He says, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Our strength is not in our efforts. Our strength is not in my habits. Our strength is not where I go to church. Our strength in the joy of the Lord is in his strength. Because when I am weak, you know what Christ is? He is strong. When I am low, he is high and lifted up. When I am struggling, guess what? He is solid as a rock. When I am torn about, tossed to and fro, He is steady as an anchor. Over and over again, we need to understand that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Why? Because Christ is our strength. So you read the Word of God and say, Pastor Nick, it cuts me and it convicts me and it hurts me and it, it wants to change me. You ought to be like, oh, but it's good. Do you know what that means? It means Christ has got the scalpel in his hand. And he's cutting you and he's pulling things out of you. Why? Because he's trying to get you out of you so he can put more of him in you. So my prayer is, church, my prayer is for you, you would truly understand that this book is not just a book. This is the only book when you read it, it reads you. Think about that. This is the only book. And I know some of you out there are passionate. I like to do the I pick it and I study it section. Don't do that. Don't be open to the Word of God and pick a verse and go with it. What if you land on Judas hung himself? What are you going to do with that? You don't do that. Because when it comes to application, let me promise you, this last two things, I'll be done. I'm, I, 45 minutes ago, I said that. There's exegesis. Fancy theological words here, seminary words, big words, $10 words. Exegesis, eisegesis. One of these is great, one of these is not. 
exegesis is when I come to the text and I study the text, I study the context. You know, in real estate, my boy Respector can help you out. Location, 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 right? In the Bible, it's context, context, context. You can have the right context, context, context. Look, look at me. It cannot mean something for you that it did not mean for them. It cannot mean something for you that it did not mean for them. That's out of context. You have to understand context. Exegesis is me going to the text and seeing what God says and applying what God says to my life just as God has said it. Eisegesis, not Jesus, by the way. Eisegesis is whenever I go through the text and I think, that I'm going to put my own interpretation. And here's how you know your, your, your eisegesis in it. When you say, well, this is how it reads to me. I don't care how it reads to you. And you might be like, Pastor Nick, what if I have an opinion and I'm the only person who holds that opinion? You're wrong. Look at me. You might say, well, what do you, what do you mean I'm wrong? I mean, if, if we have thousands of years of church history... And we have thousands of manuscripts and studies that have been done on this book. And you think in your pridefulness that you're going to stumble upon something that no one else ever noticed. And it's going to change the trajectory of your entire lives. And you think that you're God's spoken mouthpiece and you can interpret Scripture better than all those people who have gone before us can interpret Scripture. You're what's known as a fool. Because you can't do it. You know the most dangerous thing in the world? A man and a woman alone with the Bible forming their own opinions. That's the most dangerous thing in the world. That's called a cult. You know what you end up doing? You end up digging plates up in the middle of the desert thinking God gave me a plate that gave me a vision that starts your religion. And you're a fool. Because God has made us to come to the text and see what God has to say. Not come to the text and change it to what I want it to say. I'll give you a classic example. You know, as Christians, you're not supposed to judge. Read the whole daggum chapter. Every, every non-believer I know knows that verse. It says, do not judge. I'm driving out my neighbor this morning. Back of this big old Chevy truck. It says, only God can judge me. I want to be like, you don't want that, bro. Knock on his door. You don't want that. Because you read the entire chapter, you see, hey, we are supposed to judge. Especially if you're a member of the household of God, because judgment begins at the household of God. You don't take the Bible and twist it and make it into what you want, because as soon as you take God's word and turn it into your word, it ceases being God's word and it starts to be your word. And your word is as good and as steady as a napkin, it won't hold up. Because we lie. You lie, I lie. You know what God, You know what the truth is, though? God doesn't lie. You know what God does in Scripture? I love this. Last thing I'm going to say. God does in Scripture, and I love it because it's so, so good. What, is, what does God swear by? You know how we say, I swear to God to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so I'm in God, right? God swears by himself. He says, I swear on myself, because there's no other thing higher. That I will do this, and it will come to pass. And it always does. It always does.